by a show of hands, who has ever had a moment in their life when they've had to say goodbye to someone and you knew this is the last time I'm ever going to see them? Looks like most of us. I, I've experienced a lot of loss in my own life. When I was 12, my mom, she died of a drug overdose. Uh, my, my grandfather, probably about seven years ago, eight years ago, I can't remember exactly when, but fairly recently, he had terminal brain cancer. And when he had about a month left to live, I flew all the way back to Oklahoma and I spent two weeks with him. And when I was there, every single day, every single conversation we had, uh, anything he brought up, I would try to some way just transition it back to Jesus. He'd say, you know, what about bowling? Jesus, you know, every single conversation. And as I'm sitting there, there's a couple times that he's thinking about what's going to happen to him and there's, there's nothing he can do about it. He would just burst into tears because he didn't want to leave his family, he didn't want to leave his friends, and it was heartbreaking for him. And when he would do this, I mean, I remember just pleading with him, like, please, 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 you have to know Jesus, you have to know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you, will not be, you won't have to be afraid of death. And I remember after doing that and just pleading with him and begging him, being so discouraged because he would never pay attention or listen to anything I'm saying. Day and night I'm praying and, and hoping for his conversion. And it just, it's just never happening. It never happened. And I remember thinking to myself, well, Maybe if I showed him Christian love, he'd probably, he may, maybe he'll listen to the gospel. I don't know what else to do. So Margie and I, we didn't have a lot of money back then. Margie didn't work. And so I took what little money we had and I went and just bought tons of groceries. I bought everything that their family had said they needed and brought it, but, but nothing. No matter how much I prayed, no matter how urgently I spoke with him, no matter how many times I talked about Jesus, no matter what I did, he just wasn't getting it. And sadly, I had to leave and say goodbye, knowing that I would never see him again. In our text, we're going to see Paul. He's going to be given a farewell to people, a final goodbye. But because he's a Christian and they're Christians, it's not a final farewell. He will see them again. I was going to give a brief uh, summary of what we talked about last time we were in Acts, but Rolf has discharged me of that for giving, me, giving us that context. But yeah, there was a riot, and uh, this is going to impact our text. We're going to focus today uh, oh wait, sorry. So, but one thing I do have to say is they want it, essentially when you attack somebody's sin and they, the sin that they love and there's a riot about it, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to try to get rid of the person who's causing that conflict, right? The person who's threatening that. And in a way it sort of worked. There was a church established in Ephesus, but Paul, um, post-riot, he's ready to leave now. 
We're going to focus on verses 1 to 6. What we're going to do is we're going to take a close look at Paul's uh, missionary journey, what's going on, and what it meant. And there are two things we're going to see happen on this journey. And I want to say before I get to that, I want Luke in Acts is giving a very general overview of what, what's going on in this time. Paul's letters tell us in detail what's happening in these verse, six, six verses. So today, I want to plant on these six verses, and we are going to move around in our Bible through Paul's letters, and I'm going to put a magnifying glass on verses one to six through Paul's letters, if that makes sense. So be ready to turn, because I want you to see what's actually going on in verses one to six. And this is an expository outline. The first thing we're going to see is the route Paul took. The second thing we're going to see is Paul's love for the churches, which can be seen in the unity and in him saying goodbye. First, we're going to look at the root. So it says, after, if you look at verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. What's happening here? So, after the riot, Paul gathered together the local believers, he encouraged them from the scripture, and he said goodbye. He said his final farewell. And we'll talk for a second how I know that's the, the final farewell. There is a problem here with this text, though. Paul leaving Ephesus at this time goes against what he said he was going to do, to the, uh, how he said he was going to leave in the, in the letter to the Corinthians. It goes against what he said his plans were in the letter to Corinthians. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And the whole time we're turning around, keep a, a bookmark on Acts 20, because we'll be going back there as well. 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to look at verses 5 to 8. I'm going to give you a second to get there. Still here's some pages. So what he's doing in verses 5 to 8, he's telling the Corinthians his travel plans while he's in Ephesus. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now and just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now, verse 8, look at his plans at departing Ephesus. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So, he's telling the Corinthians, I've got some great evangelistic opportunities here in Ephesus, and I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And what were these opportunities? Well, we've seen for the past month or so in Acts, uh, there were exorcisms, there were healings, uh, and people coming to faith. And the adversaries probably would have been uh, the Jewish exorcists, as well as those who were the, those from the guild uh, to Artemis that were starting the riots. So what's the problem with that? I said there was a problem. Well, he told the, or the, the Corinthians that he was going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost which was May. But we know and believe that this riot took place in March or April. 
and he's leaving now in our text. So he didn't stay until Pentecost. Why is that? Obviously, the riot changed his plans, right? The riot, it changed his plans. He was going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, but the increased hostility towards him and towards his life led him to flee the persecution. What does that tell us? Andy, I'm going to ask you to put up the first slide. So this is Tertullian, and Tertullian was an early church father. He's actually considered one of the forerunners uh, to the Protestant Reformation because this is in the third century. He was talking about a spiritual church, and he left the Catholic church and was talking about a spiritual universal church, not having to belong to the church of Rome. But here's a quote from him. And he's saying, uh, and this is him saying, he believed that it was a Christian's duty to step into suffering. Listen to what he said. He, talking about God, does not cherish, but ever rejects the weak, teaching first, not that we are to fly from our persecutors, but rather that we are not to fear them. Thank you, Andy. So what he's essentially saying is, God hasn't commanded you to escape persecution. He's asked you to not be afraid when persecution comes. He's asked you to be bold when persecution comes. And he even goes to, uh, so far as to say that if somebody flees persecution, that's a soft form of apostasy. And he believed that because he's saying the reason they're fleeing is because they're afraid that they're going to renounce Jesus. That's hard for me to believe that view because, as we've seen all throughout Acts, the apostles flee when their lives are threatened. Paul fled in a basket one time when he was about to die. We've seen uh, even Peter, you know, deny Jesus when his life was threatened. I mean, that is apostasy. That's denying the Lord. But he was restored. Where do we see teaching, and where else do we see teaching about fleeing persecution? Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus is telling his disciples and the other Jews, there's going to be a time when the Romans come to the gate, and there's going to be uh, someone who goes into the temple. This is the abomination of desolation. He's going to go in and offer a, I think, offer a, you know, a pig sacrifice, just a blasphemous sacrifice. When you see the Romans at the gate, when you see this happening, flee, head to the mountains, get away, save your life. So even Jesus is telling them to flee persecution. And Paul's done that here as well. We know that he wanted to leave Ephesus in May, but because of the increased persecution and hostility towards him, which was shown in the riot, he left in March or April. And so for us and for missionaries, when our lives are threatened for the sake of the gospel, we should be bold and courageous if that's what we have to do, if we have to die. But I see nothing in scripture that says we have to play their game, that says we have to stand there and just take whatever they, they're going to do to us. I don't see it saying that. Let's go on. So where did Paul tell the Corinthians he'd stop before seeing them? Macedonia. 
And in our text, in the verse one, that's exactly what happened. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So, Andy, can you put up the map now? This is a map of Paul's third missionary journey. The route is probably hard to see. If you go into your Bibles, there'll probably be a map in the back. Not the Pew Bibles, I already looked. If you have a Bible, there's probably a map in there of his third missionary journey. So, on the, if you look at the route, it starts here in Antioch, and he's going and going and going. Where have we been the past month or so in Acts? Ephesus. Ephesus is right here in Southern Asia. So he's right here in Southern Asia currently at this point. And as I said, Luke is giving a big picture overview, and we're seeing in our text, he's leaving Ephesus and going to Macedonia. Luke gives a big picture overview, but he doesn't talk about all the stops along the way. So before he went to Macedonia, he stopped in Troas, which is right here. Macedonia is over here. Troas is right here. And Titus was supposed to meet Paul in Troas, and Titus wasn't there. Uh, the reason why is that Paul was concerned about the Corinthian church when he was in Ephesus, and so he sent Titus to go check on the Corinthian church, and Titus, and the plan was for Titus and Paul to meet in Troas. So you can, you're already in 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 2. Verse 13, it says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So essentially he's saying, I was supposed to meet Titus in Troas. He wasn't there, so I just kept going. He kept going west into Macedonia. Again, Macedonia is right here, this big area, really big. And if you can see, there's a couple of familiar churches here in uh, Macedonia. You see Philippi, and you see Thessalonica. We have two letters. Uh, we have letters that go to the Thessalonians and to the Philippians, three letters all together. So that's what he's doing. He's in Macedonia, and he's going to these different churches. He's going to Thessalonica, Philippi, other places, and he's trying to strengthen them, encourage them, and give them a farewell. Verse 2, Acts 20, verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So the text says Greece, but if you look at the map, uh, this region right here, Achaia, that's actually the region of Greece he was in. And what's in Greece? Corinth, right? So he's going down to Corinth. What's, and, and, and he, remember he told the Corinthians, I'm going to stay with you a few months. That's exactly what he says into verse 3 in text, in Acts. Uh, I'll be there with you for three months. But where is he headed after he's going to Corinth? Not his final destination of Spain, but where is he headed after Corinth? He's going back. Where is it at? Having a hard time finding it. But he's going back to Jerusalem. 
But something kept him. If you look at verse 3 again in Acts, it says that he was going to stay a few months and then he was going to travel by boat to Syria. What he was wanting to do is he was wanting to take a straight route by boat to Syria. It would have been a quick trip, but what happened? Somebody threatened his life. He heard about the plot and he could no longer take the boat and go straight there. He had to go back around and essentially do the route that he had came through. So, like I said, I'll read verse 3 so you can see that in Acts. He spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to sell for, set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And we see in that, once again, Paul didn't step into the persecution, as Tertullian said. He evaded it, right? He left. He went the other way. That was Paul's route that he took. But what was his side mission? What was he doing? And I say side mission because he mainly is there to encourage the believers and build up believers and get new believers, but there was a side mission. He was doing something else. And, and Luke doesn't explicitly say it. We're not sure why, but we know that's what was happening here. He was doing something else. Look at, look at verse 4. And forgive me I'm with these pronunciations on these names. Sopater the Berean son of Pyrrhus accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derb and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. So what's happening here? These, these names that he's naming, notice they're from different regions. What they are is they are representatives from different churches in the area. And they're all with Paul. They're, they're going with Paul on this journey. Pop quiz. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, where was he? Where was he when he wrote the letter to the Romans? He was in Corinth, right? So he's writing the letter because he's going to leave Corinth, go straight to Jerusalem, but he wants to write a letter to the Romans because he's going to go there next after he goes to Jerusalem, head to Rome, and then on into Spain. So he knows that he's on the final leg of his journey, and he's just writing a letter to the Romans uh, to, to let them know he wants them to be a support church uh, for him. And if you go to Romans 16, you don't have to. I can just read this. But Romans 16, verse 16, Paul writes this. All the churches of Christ greet you. All the churches of Christ greet you. And you read that and think, how could Paul possibly know that, that all the churches of Christ greet the Romans. Well, verse 4 of our text in Acts tells us why. Because representatives of all the churches were with him and going with him, right? They were with him in Corinth and when he's writing the letter to the Romans. Why do you think they were with him? Why were all these people going with Paul? Essentially, I think it's about unity. As I said, there's something going on, and Luke doesn't explicitly mention it, but we know from his letters that what's happening in this time is Paul is going around to all these Gentile churches. He knows the Jews in Jerusalem are poor, and he's collecting funds to take back to them, right? 
He's, ha- he's collecting funds from the Jeru- uh, Gentile churches to take back to Jerusalem. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8. This chapter, it puts, a, like as I said, a magnifying glass on what's happening in our text. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. It says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so we see on the map those churches in Macedonia, and he's talking about Macedonia. And Paul said that those churches in Macedonia, they gave to the Jews above their means. And he said the way that that happened is they had such joy in the Lord, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity to them. They didn't even have the funds and the means to do that, but they did. That's what love does. Have you ever had so much joy in the Lord that you almost become reckless in your acts of love towards other people? Not thinking about your own well-being, not thinking about your needs, just just overly generous, uh, generous. That's what's happening. But for our purpose, this is historically detailing what's happening in verse 4 of our text, that he's collecting funds to bring to the Jerusalem churches, to the Jerusalem church. Uh, where else, do, where do you think he wrote this? What we see, the Macedonia, uh, he was in, he, we see in, our te- in 2 Corinthians, he talks about Macedonia, and Macedonia is where he went right before Corinth, so obviously he wrote the letter in Macedonia. If you look down, if you're still in 2 Corinthians at verse 19, you see that people were actually appointed to be with Paul. He says, not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So essentially, people are being appointed to carry out this mission. People are being, uh, representative from churches are going with Paul to carry out this mission. Andy, you could probably take down the map now. But why though? Why are they going with him? We know it's for the, to, for the relief, but why? Two reasons. One, I think, is for security. Paul's going to have a lot of money on him. One is they can help carry the money, but two, they're strength in numbers, so it's for protection, so they don't get robbed. But the second thing is, I said unity, and I believe that the Gentiles, the representatives from these churches, coming face-to-face with these Jews from Jerusalem would have created a stronger bond between the Gentile churches and the church at Jerusalem. It would have created unity. Imagine for a second, you're sitting, you see a Jew and he's sitting in Jerusalem. He's poor, probably can't take care of himself. He doesn't have enough money for food, doesn't have enough money for essential needs. And 
as he's sitting there, he sees Paul come in and he's with a bunch of Gentiles. And what do we know about Jews and Gentiles? Well, we read, uh, Rolf read today in Acts two, or Ephesians 2 that there was hostility between them, right? Hatred. And so Paul is coming in, he's got these Gentiles with him, and he's got, they're just people that you hate. But what are they doing? If you're, you see these Jews and they learn that these Gentiles who actually don't have much more money than them, don't have too much more than them, that they gave everything they had so, to people that hate them so that they would suffer less. The Gentiles gave everything they had to the Jews, people who hated them, so that they would suffer a little bit less and in hopes that that would create unity. They're self-sacrificing, right? Jews are like, I hate you. The Gentiles are responding, here's everything I have. What kind of love are we dealing with here? This is Christ-like love. This is what living a cross-centered life looks like. They are imitating Jesus who also suffered, self-sacrificed for a world that hated him so that they would not have to suffer eternally and that we would be reconciled to him. They're doing the same thing. They're sacrificing for people who hate them to be reconciled. What we're seeing is love overcoming hate and creating unity. Love overcoming hate and creating unity. That's why they're with Paul. They want to show up and see love meeting needs. What about you? How are you responding to people that don't like you? How are you responding to people that hate you? I know it's very difficult on social media with the way everybody talks on there and it's just a culture of, of just anger and hate. and It's just, it's difficult. I, I was on there recently and it's hard to, when you read stuff, sometimes it's hard to tell if you're joking or not. And I, you know, I told a joke on, to one of my friends and he read so many assumptions into it and he responded, so negatively and, and it was calling me names and I, I'm like, I didn't mean anything of what you said. But my first response, I wanted to respond the same way. I wanted to have an eye for an eye. I, and then I realized, you know, I can't do that I, even though I want to. As a Christian, I have to respond in love. But what about you? I know that at least one time and several times in your life, you were so filled with joy and peace and love in the Holy Spirit that all you wanted to do was show great acts of love towards other people. I know a Christian man who, he one day he came home and all the, the windows in his house were broken 
and he found out it was some neighbor kids that had lived down the street. And instead of calling the cops, which he could have rightfully done, he made a deal with their parents that these kids would come to his house and they would repair the windows and he would help them. And he did. And while he's there, he's getting to know them, he's feeding them, and he's sharing the gospel with them. He made friends with them. During World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her family, they were arrested because they were secretly hiding Jews and they got sent to a concentration camp. And while they were in the concentration camp, uh, Ten Boom got to witness the murder of her father and mother. Years later, she came back to Germany and she was given a speech and she was just talking about God's forgiveness. And while she's doing this, she sees a man that she recognizes. It's the guard who killed her parents. He doesn't recognize her, but she recognizes him, which would be fitting. You, you would recognize the person who killed your parents. He doesn't, he's killed probably lots of people and seen lots of people, so he doesn't recognize her. So afterwards, the guard comes up to Ten Boom, and he says to her, I loved your message about grace and forgiveness. And what's, what's strange is, uh, this, the exact same concentration camp that you spoke about, I was a guard at that concentration camp. She was like, duh, I know. She didn't say that, thought it inwardly. But she said as he's standing in front of her, she said she's so full of hate and anger and she just wants to say so many hurtful things to him. And she said in that moment, you know, I'm remembering Jesus' command, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And she said, I know that love is not an emotion. It's a choice. It's a decision. And so she just prayed, Father, will you please help me forgive this man? Will you please give me the words to say? And she said she felt a warmth just rush over her. And she kindly said, told him what happened and said, I forgive you, brother. Remember those seasons in your Christian life where you were so overcome with the joy in the Lord that you couldn't help but want to spread that love to other people? A time when you were so overcome with joy in the Lord that you just wanted to, to just love other people because you're so full of that love yourself. Some of us, we've had dreams of adoption. Some of us wanted to become missionaries. Some of us wanted to work in or build shelters. Maybe some of us have or wanted to, you know, through some Christian agency, support several families throughout the world. But slowly, over time, all of these acts of love that we do and wanted to do, they start getting in the way of the other things that we like. We slowly, we start falling for the American dream and our desire for material things, our hot, our our, uh, our hobbies, our desire for comfort, our desire for entertainment, that begins to crowd out our resources and time that we have for loving other people. And as we start sowing to our flesh, our soft hearts, they start becoming hardened and callous and unresponsive. And we go through these long seasons where we're going through these motions until one day we finally come to the realization that 
I'm living a self-centered life, not a, not a cross-centered life. I'm living a self-centered life, not a cross-centered life. But what if we decided to change that? What if when we go on social media, we see all the name-calling, we see all the hatred, we see all the anger, and we just decide we're not going to be a people who do that? We're not going to respond that way. What if when someone does us wrong, we surrender our right to retaliation and respond with love? What if we, res- uh, we, we surrender our right to retaliation and start to realize that we're not battling flesh and blood? What if we decided to look at our time, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and just say, here's an area that I can cut out and give a little more. Here's an area of my life I can give a little bit more time to. Consciously thinking about it. Our churches and our nation, they're they're more divided than they've ever been, at least that I've seen. And I am under no delusion that Milford Bible Church is going to fix the corporate church's problem and the nation's problems. But we can have an impact on our community Where's the, down the hill, where am I at? Down the hill, there are thousands of people who think that Christians are liberal-hating, self-righteous bigots who want to drag them back to the dark ages. What if we decided through acts of love to change their perception of that? I know that it's only through Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrifice, that people can be united. But what if to get them to hear that gospel message of Jesus, we like the Gentiles imitate Jesus' sacrifice and do acts of love to reach them? Let's love people who hate us. Lastly, we can see Paul's love for the church in saying goodbye. We can see Paul's love for the church in saying goodbye. We saw a couple weeks ago that Paul has had it in his mind that he's going to leave Rome and head for Spain. He said in Romans that there are too many Christians in this area. There's too many churches. Uh, I don't need to be here. These Christians can build up other Christians. There's no need for me to be here anymore. I need to go to Spain. I need to go further west. And so in the entirety of our text, Paul isn't only strengthening these churches. He's telling them farewell. Remember at the end of verse 1, it says he gave them farewell. Or he said farewell. In other words, this is the last time you're going to see me. This is it. And you can see the love in it too because he didn't have to keep going more north if he decided what he was going to do, that he was going to go to Spain. He could have just went back to Jerusalem and then straight to Rome from there. But no, he had to go around, he had to say say goodbye, he had to strengthen these churches, and he just had to say farewell one last time. I love you, goodbye. 
There's a movie that came out this last year. It's called Nomadland. And in it, it's just a, a bunch of people. They don't have houses. They drive around North America in cars and RVs. And they just see sites and visit things. And occasionally, they'll come together in these spots in the desert and other places. And they'll just hang out for weeks at a time, days at a time, get to know each other, catch up if they did know each other, just spend time together. And at one point in the movie, the main character, she's talking to someone who has lived this nomadic life for a long time. He's been a nomad for a long time. And when they talked about leaving and saying goodbye, he responded this way. This is what he said. He said, I've met hundreds of people, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I say, see you down the road. And I do. What he's saying is the nature of our lifestyle, that we're all committed to just traveling around and doing all these things and, and meeting up occasionally, even if days, months go by, even years, I know eventually when I tell somebody goodbye, I'm going to see them again. It's just going to happen. I'm going to see them down the road at some point. This is just the way that we live. But in a much more substantial and meaningful way, Paul is saying his final farewell to them in the flesh, in this life. But it is not a final goodbye because he will see them in eternity. One Christian said about other Christians, Christians should never say goodbye just until we meet again. So whereas the quote from Nomadland meant that he'd see them later on in life in this body, Paul and this quote is saying, I'm never going to see you again in this body, but I will see you again in eternity. And that's why Paul's strengthening them. He wants to see them there. He wants them in eternity. He wants to make sure they got a good grasp on everything before he can just leave them because he loves them. I've been all over the world and I've met Christians everywhere I go. And I've had to say goodbye to so many friends. And I know chances are that I'm never, ever going to see them again. Maybe you've said goodbye to a loved one. Maybe not because you left a certain country or a certain state. Maybe you've been in a hospital room and watch them take their final breaths. Maybe they died in your house and you've been there. If they are believing in the resurrected Lord, even though we say goodbye, we are not eternally saying goodbye. In the world as it currently is, at one point, you are going to experience suffering that you did not think was imaginable. You're going to experience hardship that you didn't know could come. Death could likely be one of those things, or the death of someone very close to you. But if we believe Jesus' words, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, we know it's not the end. 
And as we're going to see just next week, God, Paul, through the work of the Spirit, is going to raise someone from the dead. And that tells us that God has power over death. When I used to think about my grandfather and having to visit him uh, with all that and then having to leave and, and knowing he just kept rejecting the gospel, rejecting everything I said, and I'm leaving knowing he's got like a couple weeks left to live, I could barely take it. And he did die. Sorry. Well, recently, I talked to a Christian relative. I barely talked to her, but I did talk to her, and she told me that a couple days before he passed, he came to her, or she came when she was visiting. He told her, I'm feeling so guilty about my sin. I'm feeling so guilty about my sin. And she said, take it to Jesus. And I think he did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unity that we have. We pray, Father, that, that you would strengthen our own churches, that you would help us to get past these little disagreements that we have, these quarrels that we have, realize that we are believing in a bigger gospel. I pray for the unity of this church. That's what I want. I want to see us unified in love. And I pray that just as the Macedonians, that this love that we have in the Lord and the love that we have for one another would just overflow and spill out into our community. I pray that you would work that in this church, and we pray and we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.